Hello there, and welcome to the Roots of Networking podcast brought to you by Hamilton Barnes. Here at Hamilton Barnes, we're a specialist recruitment consultancy in the technology space, covering everything from enterprise networking, telecoms, security, fiber, and more. Hey everyone, welcome to our spin-off to the Route to Networking Security Vendor Edition. I'm Jake Brown, Network Security Consultant here at Hamilton Barnes. Today I'm joined by Stuart Borgman, a very special guest. Um, to me, very looking forward to this speaking about his journey in networking, how he's moved into security. Thank you very much for joining us, Stuart. Yeah, hi Jake. Nice to nice to be invited along. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. I thought a good place to get in, get started was to go into how you got into networking originally. So how did you sort of get into the space? Well, I, I, I guess networking was was wasn't even on my radar when I first moved in into the market. Um, I've been in the industry for so many years now. You know, when I started, I you know I really was interested in in technology when I left school. Um, didn't really know what to do, to know what to do, but I wanted to go into engineering, and I ended up going working for an old company. Went to work for for Shell Oil. Uh, and really what I got involved in was control systems, which was really interesting. I touched on a little bit of my knowledge and early understanding around computers. It was all pneumatic driven in those days because of the electrical issues. So I was doing that and then an opportunity came up in, in London, which I guess was probably transformational for me because what they were really moving forward was with, with IT and Shell were a really innovative company and I guess they still are. You know, they use technology to really drive their business and they had this opportunity in telecommunications in their IT organisation. At the time I didn't even know what IT was. Um, joined them because I had some level of uh, electronics background, went along, didn't really know what I got into and suddenly understood this whole world of telecommunications and Shell were amazing. And Shell were using probably every form of technology out there at the time. Technology doesn't exist today. DeckNet, you know, a lot of DeckNet work ended up becoming protocols in OSPF. There was Novell, there was Apple Talk, all these different protocols, uh, which I found quite fascinating. And then the project that really transformed was what Shell wanted to look at how they could use multi protocol routing. And I guess multi protocol routing doesn't really exist today. They wanted to use devices that can consolidate everything down onto a single platform. And that's when we worked on Cisco. I worked with a good colleague of mine who was based up in Manchester. He started a project off. And together we rolled out first Cisco routers into to Shell. We consolidated everything down onto one platform. I think it drove down cost. We took an Apple tool, DeckNet, all these different protocols onto these things called AGS plus Cisco routers. There were probably 10 people in, in Cisco in the UK at the time. So it's quite fascinating. But I think what it, it told me, it gave me a few lessons. I think first of all, how doing good IT projects can drive down cost, and it's certainly implemented cost. Um, and the second thing is that you know technology is really behind innovating of organisations. Really, really important. So, yeah, that's how I get got into um, into IT and and networking, and you know, I got the bug and I started playing around with Cisco routers, and that was the rest is history, really. Yeah, but I imagine when you, if you go able to show that value with the cost as well, as well as obviously the innovation side of things, that's where obviously many businesses are going to end up implementing it because obviously it does come down to that. So I imagine then being able to see all that, see that early on, I imagine that's why you're able to do it so early in the, in your career as well. And correct on it all because all laid down. Absolutely. I mean, we would we took 
probably the, they had a what they called network control at the time, which was really probably 10 engineers going around and fixing all the desktops, all the communications. It wasn't the computer, it was just the telecommunications. And I think that team probably halved over an, an 18 month business as well. And that, I think that's really where my next career move came. I wanted to go and work for a vendor and I realized at that stage um, that what I worked for was an oil company, not a IT organization, not for someone where their core business was IT and compute. What they were was an oil company. And therefore what I realized in my career is I needed to move to a business where what I was doing, which was core business to them. And that was a decision I made. Now, you know, I think others may think about you know, the organizations they want to work for and the core technology they work on. But you've got to be, I believe, when you're working in a business, the most value you can bring is when you're influencing their business. And that's why I made the decision to move to, to a vendor market and looked around and, you know, the rest was, you know, I said it before, the rest was history. But it was a it was a fantastic move for me when I moved into into the vendor world and it opened up a you know a whole insight into why the industry worked. It was really exciting. And then going through your career, how has the internet evolved since you first started your career? Oh, fundamentally, I remember when I first got the, uh, started playing around with Cisco routers, they had their first manual. Um, it was release eight, I think was the release, um, before they even had upgradable software. And the manual had all the descriptions around the different protocols. I remember reading about this Border Gateway protocol, and it was before BGP4, and it was talking about how the internet could connect together through different ISPs. Oh, it's fascinating, but that's never going to happen. Um, you know, and five years later, the the internet started to to really grow. But what it really was at the time was a connectivity. It was it was really around how did organisations talk to each other. It was all about the network, and the network was the fundamental. And you know, internet is a routing protocol. It's a protocol for transporting different services. But really, what's happened now is it's now the services that sit on top of that network. So the internet, I think, has been gone from, in my view, and I'm sure others would probably have a different view of it, but the way I've seen my career go, it's moved from a network infrastructure to a services infrastructure. It's all about what overlays on top of that network, the web services, the social media, all the business applications, they all now run across this. And what's really interesting for me is, you know, I've got uh, my two sons, are grown up and one of them still works from here from from the house he finished degree and then starts to work from here he's going to move out shortly but all of a sudden i realized my home network was mission critical because if i made any changes to the home network or the broadband suddenly he couldn't work and i couldn't work so it's really interesting you know went from a time where you had a computer at home to this internet thing where now the internet is mission critical wherever you are whether it be in your home or whether it be inside of a a corporate organization or a telecommunications provider is mission critical critical because everything we do business related goes across this internet and i think that's been the transformation and you know as a result of it you've seen the success that amazons and google have had by using this infrastructure to go and build their business models which fundamentally aren't telecommunications they aren't computing they're advertising or other different social media type models it's not really internet related but it's the infrastructure they need to be successful when it's when it was sort of switched to being more service driven you mentioned how did that directly impact you i think what happened was the scale of it um you know one of the i was fortunate enough to 
to work at Cisco and then Juniper and what Juniper solved, and they were the first ones to solve it, was how do you take the internet routing table, which we know is, is global, and put it into a single piece of silicon. And the guys behind that were incredibly smart and they solved the scaling problem. And you could see the internet was beginning to, to struggle because the infrastructure wasn't able to deal with the growth of all these services on top of it. But solving that problem and moving the internet into hardware, into scalable technology, meant that they suddenly could go from low speed connections into you know, now hundreds, 400 gigabit circuits all around the whole globe. And that was a fundamental problem that needed to be to be solved. And subsequently, there's been huge amounts of competition between Cisco, Juniper, Aquitel, and to a certain extent other vendors, maybe Huawei are in there as well. But they really drove and they competed very, very hard. Um, what that did for me, it meant that the opportunity just grew. You know, we had this technology in, in Juniper that we're able to go out there and work with our customers to go and build out large scale global infrastructure, which is both exciting from a business perspective, but also from a technical problem as well. You know, you suddenly saw the, the, how BGP enabled this internet, which was designed 25, 30 years ago. Um, you know, Jakob Richter did it on his back of his napkin in a restaurant somewhere. Um, and now it's still scaling out and it's been solved, but it's been solved by the design of the protocols, the design of the hardware as well. And that was a really exciting journey to go on to see that grow and build out and, and really see the technology scale. Yeah, understood. And then, so we obviously were more spoken, focused on the networking side of things, but what made you decide to source more transition into cyber or into some more of the security side of things? I think, you know, as you look look at where the vendors I worked for, you know, I worked for Stratacom and Cisco and Juniper, uh, they were very much on the networking side. That's what they were, were driving. But you suddenly seeing this transition now from being a infrastructure to a services based and cyber crime and the challenges around cyber have absolutely grown. And actually a lot of the technical challenges out there now, the real technical challenges of the internet, not all of them, but one of the big technical challenges of the internet is cyber, cyber security. That's where a lot of the innovation is going at this particular stage. You know, the problems I said before around scaling the internet, there's still a lot of innovative people driving it and building it, but a lot of the problems have been solved and now it's about scaling those problems. With cyber security, a lot of the problems haven't been solved. They're moving from network security, where you had firewalls and devices that sat inside the network, to much more layer seven problems. You know, people are now looking at applications, looking at vulnerabilities in so many different ways that the, the technical challenges are just growing every day. So that became a really interesting area. And I think there's two things behind that. One, it's a really interesting market to go into because of the technical challenges and all the problems being solved. But it's also the area where it hasn't been commoditized in many ways. The networking, the switching, the, the routing technologies have been commoditized because it's a lot around the cost per bit. And it has to be because you've got to scale this out based on cost per bit. When you go into the cyber world, it's more around how do you solve really technical problems? And therefore, there's a lot more value that you as a vendor can create for your customers and sell a higher value than necessary just selling the bits, bits per second. So there was both a a technical challenge for me, but also I recognise that the market is where the, 
the market's going to continue to grow and innovate and provide real opportunities, I think, moving forward. Right. And so why do you think pe people are now seeing more value and importance in cybersecurity? Um, you know, I think it's in the press every day. <laughs> I think we all sit there and, you know, I think everyone's worried about phishing emails. In you know, we all see that on a day-to-day -day basis. We all see the challenges. We all read the press. We all see what's going on. And if you live in a in the corporate world, you also recognise the challenges that that can face. You know, how many times do you hear of crypto lock-in taking place in an organisation? You know, British Airways went down recently because of it. All these different organisations been highly impacted. So I think we all see it. We all see it out there. Um, I think it's very visual, and I think the challenges are very real, uh, and we're everyone's more than aware of it. And I think that's why. As well, we're seeing a huge demand for people to want to come into this industry. And I think the other thing as well, which is really interesting for me, you know, and probably this, hopefully some graduates listen to this, is that the skills that you previously needed in this industry are changing to a much more of a software-driven industry. So the skills you need, and if you look at the application development, a lot of the cyber threats actually sit inside the application. So the skills we're needing in this industry now are much more software skills. People understand applications, people who can write code. That's really where the skill set's shifting to as well. It's, it's a really changing marketplace. Um, and therefore, I think that's another interesting area around it. It's, it's really changing the way that we're having to think about the problems and the skill sets we need to solve the problems. What do you think is making people invest heavily, so, so heavily in it? Is there a particular impact from you see from you? Yeah, yeah. I think in past, the, the question that organisations have to have is what level of risk they want to take. With any any strategy, they need to think about what risks they take and what investments do they make to mitigate those risks. I think in the past, people were much more prepared to take higher risk and therefore accept the costs or maybe even insure against it. I think now with the risks becoming much more prevalent, much more aware of it, and the costs going up so much, that people are making those decisions to invest more. Then they're not prepared to take the risk. They're lower risk, and quite rightly too, because these threats are huge and the costs are, are massive. Um, and we're seeing as well as that, the attackers changing their strategies all the time. There was an interesting situation that took place a few years ago, and we were observing it in Paolo, Palo Alto Networks, where a lot of the malware we're seeing out there was crypto mining. And the crypto mining was really around how could they use other people's compute to be able to mine for cryptocurrency, and that would then definitely drive a revenue return. As cryptocurrency fluctuated in the market, as the price of cryptocurrency went down, we saw an increase in malware around the whole of the in, uh, crypto locking. So using that to extort money out of people. So the market fluctuated. The, the lower the price of the cryptocurrency, the more crypto locking you saw. The, the higher the price of cryptocurrency, the more crypto, uh, crypto mining we saw, which is really interesting dynamic. Now we're living in a world where the bad actors are also nation states. You know, there's a lot of discussions around the nation states. Are they using that to drive revenue themselves as well? And once you get nation states involved, these are very sophisticated. So therefore, you know, the threat is much, much higher. So it's a really interesting dynamic. And organisations that have CISOs, they understand this. And they're also talking the board level and encouraging investments to take place. So 
um, yeah, that's why I think we're seeing more and more investment going around because the, the, the challenges are real. And I think there's a much better understanding in the marketplace as well. Yeah. Do you see there's a particular area that they are most likely to invest in themselves within cybersecurity that seems most beneficial to business? I imagine it's obviously case by case, but. You know, I think there's, there's obviously trends. You know, people have network security. Um, the biggest trend is the whole shift to the cloud and the need now to have security, not only on-prem, but also cloud security. So there is definitely a shift. So we're seeing this whole discussion around SASE, um, which is really around cloud security and accessing the cloud. How do you secure that? Secure access service edge is the, behind that. And then you've got the SSE, the, uh, the secure service edge as well. These technologies really enable organizations to secure their cloud environment. I mean, that's a real trend that's taking place and a real growth. And if you look at the organizations out there, Power to Network, Zscaler, Netscope, they're all driving that, that whole marketplace. The other area as well, which I think is really interesting, is MDR, Managed Detection Response. You know, what people used to do, and they still do today, is they buy endpoint protection. Endpoint tech protection they put on their devices. You've got a device there. You've no doubt got some level of endpoint detection on it. I've got them here. That's really interesting. But the question is, is what happens when something happens? You know, have you got the skill set to take what that device is telling you and be able to mitigate against it and to identify what's really happening inside it? So the next move as well is to MDR, where third party organizations can monitor that for you and be able to detect a threat and respond to a threat as well. And that's a really interesting market. And I think the interesting market as well is organizations that, and there's a lot of organizations, a long tail of organizations that don't have CISOs. They don't have their own cybersecurity environment and therefore they have to be dependent on other people. So they're looking to services that can be used to go and secure those for them as well. And that's a really interesting market and one I think that's going to continue to grow because just because you've got endpoint protection, doesn't mean you've got all the skill set to be able to protect yourself. You probably need more sophisticated um, devices and machine learning to be able to really help you understand that. And you can't own that yourself. Or it cost you too much money to own that yourself. Yeah, exactly that, which is obviously why we're using more, like I said, security service providers, because they've got the investment themselves. And then you're obviously utilising that on a contract basis through them. Um, <laughs> And to go on a slightly sort of size that more focused on yourself, um, also you came from a technical background. What made you then go more into management? It's a, <laughs> that's a really good question, actually, because um, I never saw myself as a manager. You know, funny enough, I never thought I was um, a good manager. And so it was never really on my radar. I always wanted to go down the, the technical path. And then you know, halfway through my career, I was, was working on a piece of business which was growing and someone said well do you want to go and build a team and at that stage I'd probably um, I was sort of probably mid 30s late 30s and I thought actually it's probably the right time to go and do it but you know and I'd also been involved in a bit of training around management which was really useful so I decided to take that step across and do you know what it was really really interesting um, I enjoyed it I felt I was good at it, um, you know, because I, I really began to sort of study how you, you manage people and work with people. And I really enjoyed it. But at the same time, though, I never really stepped away completely for technology. I, I would say I'm probably 50% a manager. And I also like to have 
my my foot in the technology, but you know, I'm nowhere near as good as the, the people that spend their whole life working on the technology. But I, I still would like to be involved in it. So having that balance between managing and also being involved in the technology for me is what really motivates me and excites me. Was it a big transition taking a step away from being 100% technical to then having to sort of split 50-50? Uh, without doubt, it was it was <laughs> it wasn't straightforward because there's things I had to stop doing. You know, I could no longer spend time hands on and working with technology. I occasionally do it if I get a chance, but stepping away from it was really important. And I think the the other piece, which you may touch on later, is that you know one of the things that I was told I was doing my my training is you know never be afraid to hire people that are smarter than you and better than you. And that's that's not an easy thing to do. You know, it's there's always a temptation to say, right, I want to be the smartest person in this team. But the reality is the best managers are those that always look to hire people that are smarter than you because, you know, and that's rewarding. You see them grow and develop and build out. And if you take that step and you try to find people that are smarter than you, in my case, it's not hard, um, but it's, it's really good. Um, to go and do that and, I, and I, you know that is quite fulfilling but it's a it's a leap of faith when you do it um, but you know to see people blossom and grow and just do amazing things and you know and it benefits you as well because it makes yeah. you look good for your management team as you have really smart people doing very smart things so it's a it's a temptation to not do it but without a doubt you know without a doubt you have to go and employ the best people you can when you're a, when you're a manager and it makes your life easy as well because the best people you don't need to manage. <laughs> and that's the great thing about it as well. Some are a bit more tricky, but um, typically the best people you don't need to manage as well. Yeah. Is that how you would then define a good manager or is there anything you'd talk about or how would you define that? So you obviously touched upon it there. Um, you know what, I think there's, when I was doing my training as well, there's a few academic things which I took in. I think the the first one was that... There's a book called from a guy called Blanchard, and he said management by situation. And what that book really talks about is that everyone is individuals. So therefore, don't when you work for your team, don't assume that they're all the same personality type. You manage them individually. Manage them, think how they think, work with them, develop them, coach them in all different ways based upon their own um, their own you know, personal traits. It's really actually interesting to me. So I was reading the paper this morning and it was talking about football managers. It talk about Frank Lampard. I'm going off a tangent here. You know, the fact is, did he do a good job at Everton? And should they need more training? And not necessarily Frank Lampard, but there's been other managers that have gone from being really good footballers to actually being not such good managers. And there's also, he talked about um, Roger Federer, who was an amazing uh, tennis player. But what he isn't good at doing is telling you why he can play such the perfect shot. And what he said about was this thing called expert-induced amnesia. And I'd never heard of this before. But what that really is, is someone so good at something, but it doesn't necessarily mean they understand how they do it and how to go and apply it and how to go and teach somebody. So you've got all these brilliant people out there. And even in technology, they may have this expert-induced amnesia. So you take them out, make a manager, are they actually going to able to articulate why they do such a good job on a day-to-day basis? And it's something that's quite interesting to think about as people decide to to go from being a you know an expert in their field to being a manager. Are you able to take what you know and learn and be able to coach against it, or do you need more training experience before you go and do it? So 
the whole subject is relevant across all industries, I, I would say. Um, don't always just take the best person and make them a manager. Yeah, I think that's why I think more and more companies now are offering that soft skills element once you are at that technical level to help the transition and think obviously it's important to do it yourself. Like we've obviously mentioned a book there, the reading, there's so much material out there. I think it's being that proactive side. But obviously you mentioned uh, one book there. Is there anything else you'd recommend for someone that was making that transition to help? No, I mean, but I think you touched on um, a minute ago is, is take the training. You know, don't yeah. dismiss the training. I was fortunate um in juniper they did some fantastic management training i was involved in in a number of different sessions um and there was a really good person that ran the whole team over at juniper and i think you know i'm always eternally grateful for what he did for me but i think as people go into management don't dismiss the academic side of it because you don't have to implement it parrot fashion but there's a lot of things you can learn from it books there's different you know, experts that have thought about this over years and it's definitely worth thinking about it. And it's also something that you you can't you can't just learn yourself. You've got to be able to think about it and develop. Um, actually there's one one thing which I remember there's a great book um, called The Good to Great by Jim Collins and he talks about how you evolve a business from being a good business to a great business and he attributes that business and how they behave around it. And interesting he he talks about the fact that if you've got a team, you have to manage someone, then they shouldn't be in your team as well as that. That's interesting. If someone's high maintenance and you don't actually have to manage them every day, don't don't have them in your team. Which I always thought was an interesting view about it. And that's a trait that he'd seen as he'd sort of evolved, as he'd gone and studied these different organisations that went from good to being great companies. And then again, so you did touch upon, I'm going back a little bit, about the te- treating everything situationally. Is that about the mindset of how they do, how uh, becoming a manager and how you approach it? Is there anything else to a mindset that either you need going into it or you need to adjust from coming from a technical background? Um, Yeah, I think you you also need to realise, I think, as you go and manager, that you are taking a step up. The people that maybe you've been working with before, you know, they are your friends and they're you know the people that you would absolutely build a great relationship with but ultimately you are managing as well yeah that's an interesting step so you've got to be able to build you've got to be able to view people and behave in a way that's important because there will be times when you're going to have to make tough decisions so being too close to people and being friends with them and there's no reason why you can't be friends with your, your team but you've also got to make sure that there is a professional side of you which who treats those conversations you have with them in a very professional way because they want it as well. You know, I think people want to be coached. People want to be told how to improve. And therefore, you've got to be able to take a step back and be a manager and not just be a friend with somebody because that's no good because there will be tough times when you realise they're not performing and you need to have a tough conversation with them. So you've got to make sure that your behaviour as a manager is, is right and you set your mindset in the right way because I've seen so many people that struggle to to have a, a a strong managerial relationship with someone and that all works for a long period of time until the tough times come and that becomes a difficult situation so your behavior is really important so your behavior is important how you work with people uh, but it doesn't mean you you can't be fair doesn't mean you can, can't get on with people doesn't mean all those things but you just got to make sure you get the right balance right in your behavior 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The balance seems to be important because you have to understand each person, like you said, to be able to manage them situationally. But it's the case of not then getting too pally and getting in and going over that edge. So it's the balance of understanding how to manage that individual, what understanding them, but not going, but by still keeping that strict, you know, the professional line, should we say? It, so. It's an art, and you know, you have to, you know, there's empirical learning that takes place. And I think, as I said before, you've got to go out and and get the basis in in knowledge you know you've got to go and have a, you've got to be able to go and study and understand the the principles but like with anything you know you can go and do a degree but you can't go out there and work in the workplace about that empirical learning and it's the same with management as well there's empirical learning and you will make some mistakes everyone makes mistakes but you've got to learn from those mistakes as you go through like any job whether it be a technical job or whether it be a management job enjoying the conversation so far interested in following a similar career path why don't you take a look at our jobs page where you'll find your next opportunity. Head to www.hamilton-barnes.com forward slash jobs. So, and then going off the more managerial side, if we go on to more how you see the industry developing um, or even more the threats, how do you think threats are going to become more sophisticated? I think that's what a lot of people are worried about at the moment. And do you think what damage that could cause? Uh, so you know, we talked about before around software and the marketplace it's the, the challenge that that we have at the moment is a lot of the, the threats today are are done by very sophisticated individuals who are very bright and the more backing they have and the more capabilities they have they're able to go and build very sophisticated threats the problem is now though is a lot of what's the market's changing where the bad actors have access to huge amounts of compute resources. So what they're able to build in terms of threat attacks and capabilities is, is growing. It's turning into a software developed threat landscape. And you know the, the scenario in the future, and everyone's talking about now machine learning and AI, you know, how do you use AI applications? That's what's really behind a lot of the strategies moving forward and the reasons behind it is not only does it help you to protect it but also it's been used from an attack vector perspective as well and these AI machines there's been a lot of talk around chatbot from from Microsoft and all those other sort of applications these are growing compute and their level of sophistication is is huge but also they think in different ways there was there's a really interesting book um, by Eric Schmidt who's the the ex-CEO of, of Google, and he's just written a, um, an interesting book. Uh, it was called The Age of AI. And what he talks about in that is how AI is developing. But one of the, what, one of the areas he talks about was that they've built, a few years ago now, a machine, AI machine, that could take on grandmasters in chess. And the reason it was so successful is all they told it said to go and beat the grandmasters. That was the instruction they gave it. So they went out and studied all the different chess moves and they then took on the grandmasters. What they figured out is that AI machine used moves, chess moves that no one ever thought of before because they were thinking it was thinking in a very different way. As a result of it, they could think multiple steps ahead and moves that hadn't been thought of before. And therefore, they were able to outmaneuver the grandmasters because they were thinking in a different way. They weren't thinking like a human; they were thinking like a machine. So that was was interesting. And and you think, and then all of a sudden, you get a situation where 
these machines now, you ask them any question and they can go and evolve it. You know, why couldn't you ask a machine to go and solve some medical is issue? But at the same time, why couldn't you ask a machine also to come create some virus no one's seen before? And now, so that's, you know, COVID world, that's quite a scary thought. But then you go into cybersecurity, you are suddenly start getting these machines to come up with some cyber attack that hasn't been thought of before, then it becomes really interesting. So you need to have machine against machine. So you can see how this is going, going to, to evolve. Um, the other one, which is, I think that's probably long longer term, but you can see how the, the market would develop. But the other one, which is really interesting, was uh, in Palo Alto Networks. You've got Niazuk, who's the, the founder, exceptionally um, talented, and you know, he's the visionary still for the company. And what he is, what they're working on now is how can they develop the automated um, response network? You know, the scene today is really what's dependent upon. The scene today will take all of the threat factors, it will take all of the different data, and then someone behind that will sit and stitch it together and then come up with the attack probably over the next week or so because it's a lot of data to consume and they've got to stitch all this together. Imagine if you can give that to a computer and say to the computer, why don't you solve that? In theory, the computer's big enough, the, the environment's big enough, it should be able to solve that in minutes and not days and not weeks because now you need to be able to respond so much quicker. So at the moment, we're still very dependent on human interaction. If you can move that to the computer environment, the human environment, all of a sudden you get to the stage now where computers can start solving this problem, they can accelerate the time to resolution. And that's really, really important because the, the greater sophistication of the attack, the greater the complexity of the problem to solve, and therefore you're going to need to have computers help you solve that problem rather than necessarily have a, um, a human try to solve the problem as well. So that's where the market's going. It's going to be software driven. Uh, it's a software driven attack. Now you will need different devices, both hardware and software, but the shift is definitely going to be through the whole of um, the use for machine learning, artificial intelligence, different algorithms to help you solve these really complex problems. What are your thoughts, Gossi? The One of the elements of having, say, a SOC, a dedicated SOC, is they've obviously got typically what well, seem at the moment, obviously moving more towards having it automated and things like XOR moving forward. But it's also having that human element because they've got that bit that you know necessarily couldn't be infected. How do you think that we could maybe work with that or look to carry out that moving forward as well? Or if you if you have less human involvement. Yeah, so I think what what the way I think there's the steps we're going to go in this direction. The 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 key to a SOC is making sure that the SOC engineers are working on the most critical problems. So a lot of the work that the Palo did with XOR was to be able to automate a lot of the noise, a lot of the threats that are coming in. A lot of it's very minor, might be a phishing email. You need to close down that phishing email and, and close that trouble ticket. What you don't want to do is have human interaction there because while they're working on a, you know, a fairly simple phishing email, there's a bigger problem that's taking place elsewhere. So what what the whole where the SOAR is going and what Palo's working on and other organisations is is how do you reduce the amount of noise that's taking place and automate that? That's really really important. So the SOC engineers and it motivates SOC engineers because the SOC engineers are bright individuals that are spending their time working on really complex problems. So if you can get them working on the complex problems and not the administrative overhead, 
That's really important. So you're halfway through that battle at that particular stage. That's the first stage. Obviously, the next stage will be get to the point where you automate that as well, even the complex problems you automate. That's where the industry needs to get to. Now, that will take a lot of time to get there, but that's the journey the whole SOC will go on. And of course, you know, you'll still need SOC engineers that are behind these machines and developing it. It doesn't mean you get rid of SOC engineers, you just shift them to the more interesting problems because that's really what these SOC engineers want to be working on. They want to be working on the interesting stuff, not the administration. That's what makes people leave the administration, not the interesting problems. So um, I think the, the, the threat landscape just changes and what you need a SOC engineer will change. But hopefully, ultimately, a lot of it will be much more automated moving forward. Yeah, and I think it sounds like getting rid of the noise is the, like I said, getting rid of the more repetitive or the things that you don't, that, that you do hugely hear they aren't overly interested in. They'd rather be doing, like you said, the complex stuff. Like, it's, yeah. So, um, you go for a job interview and someone sells this really lovely job, which is fantastic and it's all really exciting. And you turn up there and what you're doing is administration. That's not what people want to do. And uh, so if you can get rid of that administration for someone, and get them working on the really exciting problems then hey that's a that's a great job to be in isn't it it's a great yeah. job and then we have touched on it a couple of times actually and many in the house and it's gonna be more software driven things like that but how do you think the skill set necessary to get into cybersecurity is going to change as the industry moves forward oh you know i've seen it over the over the years if i go back you know a few years ago in the network industry certainly you know the people that were the successful ones that knew Cisco IOS or knew Juniper Junos, these are proprietary operating systems. Those days are going. Um, it's now about automation. It's all about software skills. You know, can you can you code in Python? Can you automate? Can you do can you do software development? And that's the the, the perfect place. So I remember a number of years ago working with an organisation that were building a, a cloud a data centre in Germany. I remember interviewing the the CTO and I said, look, how do you employ for this? This is, you know, this is a new skill set. He said, we're we're opposite a university. They come walking out of university and we take the brightest and bring them to our company. And they are the software developers. There is a completely new software skill set. So you know, I'd encourage anyone to make sure that their programming skills are up to date and keep working on it. Not only is it interesting, but it's where the market's going. And I think nearly all jobs will be, whether it's data driven in the fintech market whether it's in cybersecurity, whatever market, software skills are are critical, really critical. And, you know, and it will never hurt even as you go into management moving forward because good managers will have an understanding of the market. You won't necessarily have to program moving forward, but you've got to understand the market you're managing in because that would help you as you hire people as well moving forward. So software, it's all software if you ask me moving forward and it's it's a it's a brilliant skill to have as well. Would you recommend Python specifically? Obviously, there's loads of options. One, probably one of the most accessible. But is that where you would probably recommend for someone looking to do it? See, I'm probably not the right person to ask that because every time I ask someone what language they program, and they tell me it's a different different language. So uh, <laughs> that shows how old I am, and in the fact that I don't really understand it. But you know, it seems to me Python is such an important language. It's a scripting language, and if you can do Python, you can you can move around as well. It's, it's amazing when you talk to people, you ask them what language and they come up with some name, which I look blankly at, but you realize they've not been doing that language for very long, but what they had was a, was a foundation in software, which meant that they could adapt very easily. But, you know, scripting languages seems to be the, the main 
component of any one skill set today. You know, I'm sure there's C++ and those other languages out there today as well, but um, you won't, you can't go wrong, I don't think, if you've got Python skills, as far as I can see. Awesome. And it's obviously more the software side, um, as always given as a tip. Anything else you'd suggest for someone that's looking to get into, say, networks or, or and or security? Um, no, yeah, maybe we'll touch this later on. But, you know, my when, when I interview people and a lot of the time when you're interviewing people, you look, you're interviewing people who won't necessarily have the skill sets you need day one. And that's hard because this market's changing so fast and the chances of you finding someone that know exactly what you need day one is really hard. So one of the key aspects I look for is a sense of curiosity. So I want someone that's really interested in a subject and you, when you talk to them, you make them realise, they make you realise, hey, they really love this technology and you can see them getting passionate about it and you can see them working late hours just on their own time because they really love it and those are the ones that just are hugely skillful and they're the ones that that i want so i think have you know have a sense of love technology have a sense of curiosity you know develop software but you know be get passionate about something if you do that then i think that comes through really strong in an interview i, I um i interviewed a guy a little while back uh, I needed someone that really understands cybersecurity, but he only really knew traditional networking and mobile networks. But I need someone that understands cybersecurity was applicable to mobile networks. That was really interesting, but I thought we don't have the cybersecurity skills. So I um, I arranged to interview him, and I also arranged to interview <coughs> someone else that that came directly out the market, had all the relevant skills. So the two of them I was going to interview. Uh, the guy that didn't know the cybersecurity turned up there. And he told me he'd downloaded our virtual machine, he got it up and running, he'd passed the first basic exam, and he did this in about three days. And he talked through it with knowledge. Oh, wow, you're good. And I got a reference from him actually, and from his old boss, and he said, Yeah, he, he learns very quickly. And I took him on, and by God, he's probably one of the best people I've ever hired. He was unbelievable. He learned the technology so fast, uh, and he's gone off to do other amazing things ever since real talent incredible talent and that he didn't have all the skills but what he demonstrated is he was able to to learn quickly and i think if you can demonstrate you're able to learn quickly then a good manager will pick up on that and prepare to take a risk with someone as long as you've got the skills they need you know the interpersonal skills the, the communication skills the basic the foundational technology skills you show that and you add that passion to learn and that comes across i think in any interview I think that what we we actually spoke with um, someone from F5 uh, quite recently that said very similar. Um, having that passion as well, if you, that when you have that passion, it drives you moving forward in your career as well. Because those are the sort of people that are going to keep doing the research. They're going to keep looking for ways to innovate and how they can move forward. And then there's some people that are going to be looking for the progress and how they can help the team and how they can change the industries. So it's also for the future for the business as well. People that are really going to drive drive it from, from what I've um, heard. Uh, without a doubt, you, you think, I mean, I look at um, just my career and the, the amount of iterations of change that I've been through, and that and it's only going to get faster. So what we think is the norm today will change very, very fast. So the ones that will survive and be successful are the ones that can involve themselves. And you need to have a desire to learn new skill set. You can't just learn something and stop. This market is moving so fast. 
so fast. If you haven't got that skill set to change, then you will you will not have a successful career. So I think that's what the industry wants. It wants people that are able to evolve themselves and continue to, to change. You know, I joined Paolo six years ago and they were a network firewall company. Uh, they had their threat cloud, um, but they didn't really have much else. Now the portfolio is just huge and all the systems engineers are expected to know it. And, you know, you, and that's a sink or swim situation because if you don't understand the technology, you're going to struggle there. But, you know, if we hired the right people, then the right people would be, be passionate to go and learn, want to go and learn, and we'll be able to learn, and we'll be able to take that technology forward. So it, it means hard work, but, you know, by God, you can learn some really interesting technologies and you can have a real lot of fun if you put the time and effort into doing it. And, but if you enjoy it, then it becomes much easier than if you don't enjoy it. Yeah. And is, um, so is there anything else as well as the design that you'd recommend that you think that looks good for employers, for people that are looking to get into the industry? Yeah, I think um, you know, I, I went down the the apprentice route. Um, I've got yep. my H&D, uh, agency, sorry. And then, but I realised that what I needed was a degree. So I did a degree part-time. I ended up doing my degree, my open university degree. So I think the thing with degrees or levels of sort of levels of education, it shows ability to learn as well. I think that's the really important aspect of it. So I would encourage people to to learn. You know, one of the things I look for now as well is, is people that have gone and passed the AWS exams or the Google exams because that's a software-driven environment and that shows also someone that may not be working in it, but it's the amount of people I've spoken to said, you know what, I went and passed my AWS exam. That was quite interesting. Why did you do it? Well, you know, because that's where the market's going. I can see technology going from hardware into software and a good place to host it is in AWS. So they're going to learn that as well. So it's good areas of, of learning and knowledge to, to go and develop. Don't do, don't do certification for the sake of it. Do certification and education because you're interested in what that technology can deliver for you. Well, been great um, covering those sort of things. Is there anything I haven't asked that you think you would like to sort of cover off? I don't think so, really. Um, been been an interesting conversation, actually. So uh, thank you. That's right. We've uh, we've got one last bit, the quick fire uh, round. So I'll ask a few questions. Let me know what the first thing that pops into your head. All right. Okay. Um, what's your favourite book? Oh, good question. I mentioned Jim Collins. Good to great. Brilliant book. Um, I've got a number of great, I always, I love um, Harry Redknapp's Always Managing and West Ham fan, so I, I love that book. But I've just read a book called The Cryptononicum, which is an amazing book, it's hugely long, uh, but it's really around the role of mathematicians in, in the Second World War. And without those mathematicians, probably the Allies would never have won the war. And people don't realise that. The mathematicians and the cryptologists were, the role they played is a fictional book, it's about 900 pages, but it's an incredible book. So yeah, that was that was a really interesting read I had recently. Yeah. And if, uh, three non-negotiables when hiring? Um, I'm not sure I'd have three. Uh, I say that, you know, I, I like to go in with an open mind. I think the one I would say, and probably repeat it three times, is no compromise. You know, you've got to get the right person. If you haven't got the right person, someone will sink. If they don't, if they give it to the wrong person, that would end up in a bad conversation. So I would say no compromise. 
the other area as well if you need someone in a certain location hire them into that location the problem is people will say i'm happy to travel i'm happy to do this but ultimately that goes wrong as well because as people get used to the job and get bored of it they will then want to spend more time at home or doing this and traveling is harder so hire into the right location as well that's the two thing areas don't compromise and hire the right location and then uh controversial opinion uh i'm not sure i would say i talked about this earlier if you give me a cv and the first page is full of certifications i would more likely throw that in the bin because I think if someone spends the whole life just doing certifications, nine times out of ten they're doing it for checkbox rather than they know the technology. I mean, I think certifications are great, but I've seen people that have certifications in every single product, and you bring them in and you ask them a question around a technical question, and nine times out of ten they don't have it because they're spending all their time trying to do it for checkbox. So um, don't give me the first page of certifications. Never do that because I think that doesn't tell me what I want to know. Understood. Um, and when you think of success, anyone in particular that springs to mind? Oh, um, I've obviously worked with a, worked for and with a number of really smart people. You know, the the two that stand out for me are probably Scott Crenz, who was the CEO of Juniper when I first joined, and Mark McLaughlin, who was the CEO of Palo Alto. I think those two were probably one of some of the most inspirational people I've ever worked with. They were rock hard, iron fists in terms of the way they run the business, incredibly smart and people that, that would sit with you and you felt at the end of it that, wow, they were completely engaged in me. You know, the, the skill sets they have were incredible. And um, yeah, amazing people, those two. And you can see why they're both their companies were incredibly successful. And final one, uh, nerdiest piece of technology that you own? Oh, <coughs> as it's cold, um, I actually have a thermal imaging um, adapter for my iPhone. So I can use it to look at where the cold patches are in my house and I need more insulation. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled it the other day recently, it's brilliant. So I can walk around and see where it's really cold. Thermal imaging, and I take photographs of all the different thermal images around the places in my house. <laughs> That's a good bit of fun, I like that. But uh, yeah, my thermal imaging for my, for my iPhone. No, it's good to hear. Well, it's been great speaking with you. I think there's been a lot of good insights for people getting into it, um, as well as people that are already in it, they're more technical, going into the sort of more, more managerial side, as well as just insight into if you're transitioning to cyber or how it's going to move forward, move going, uh, how it's going to transition going forward. Um, so yeah, it's been been brilliant. Thank you very much. Sure. Jake, brilliant. Look, thank you for your time. And you know, if people listen to this and they they're graduates, I would say. I couldn't think of a better industry to go into than cybersecurity. Super exciting and it's not going away in any time soon. So great place to be. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you for your time. No, thank you very much. Hamilton Barnes thanks you for listening to today's episode. Whether you're looking for that next big opportunity or looking for like-minded people to join your team, we'd love to hear from you. So please don't be shy. Get in contact. We look forward to hearing from you. Call us on 0207 808 1415 or email us at hello at hamilton-barnes.com.